Hello everyone, this is Ron Small with Spotcast number 9, which you can find on SwayProductions.com and on iTunes. Today's interview is with the great commercial director, Paul Schneider. In the interview, we uh, make mention that we're at the uh, 3 hour and 40 minute mark, and, and you'll notice that the interview is actually about 2 hours. Uh, the reason for that is we went into a lot of discursions and uh, went into some, some off the record kind of stuff, so the interview itself is about 2 hours. And I think it's a really, really useful one. Paul went into a lot of stuff that hadn't previously been discussed on the show, and I'm really thankful for it. We begin by discussing Paul's past in design work. So tell me about how you went from design school to becoming a commercial director. Well, I started a little design company out in L.A., and I started doing a lot more shooting for, the, for you know, I had a, I, my main client, I had this little design design kind of, I guess you can call it an ad agency, but it was really just design, design based. And um, I I had this main client, which was Rosignol, the the skiing snowboarding company. Yeah. And I started shooting a ton of stuff for them, and I started doing a ton of like motion graphics work as well for them. Shooting and, uh, on sixteen millimeter at the time. Shooting on sixteen, yeah, mm-hmm. and a little bit of DV stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mini DV stuff. And I was just shooting a lot of that stuff. I was shooting a lot of my friends, skateboarding, that kind of stuff. And I was doing a lot of motion graphics. I got really into motion graphics. And um, and I got to a point where I wanted to do even bigger stuff. And I had some friends, or I met, made some acquaintances with this company, uh, Digital Kitchen, out of, um, they're at that time, they were out of Seattle. And they, and uh, we, you know, we talked a lot, you know, online and and over the phone. And you know, I just had some friends there, and they decided to open an office. They they were expanding, and they were doing a lot of at that time title sequences for for film and television. And so they were expanding to Chicago, and I, I was living out in L.A. and and my company was really small, and it it was self-sustaining but it wasn't like I was doing anything bigger than the little projects I was doing and it probably would have kept going in that way. What was the company comprised of? Was it yourself and um, how many employees? My company was it was called Wide Open Spaces. It was myself. It was another designer from Cranbrook where I went to grad school and then two and then a, a designer and we had a programmer that you know when we did any web jobs it was like four people Mm -hmm. and you would handle the kind of client interaction yeah i would i would handle the client interaction um and also you know i was the you know one of the the lead designers there it was just two of us designing everything pretty much right and you would direct and shoot uh all the video content yeah i handled all the all the video stuff yeah and I would, and because I was the one that, you know, I had the, the friends in the snowboarding and the friends in the skateboarding. So those guys trusted me and I would go out and just shoot them. You know, it was pretty lo-fi. I certainly wasn't qualified um, to be shooting. It was just, it was just making something on, you know, something from nothing all the time. But it was incredibly fun. You know, we had, we had an amazing time doing it. And did you um, learn a lot doing that? Did you learn a lot about like what kind of shots work and what you know and how to sort of tell a story from that? 
No. <laughs> you learned nothing. <laughs> I learned nothing but like the technical aspects of how to not how to make sure that things were exposed correctly. And I mean that's the one thing about shooting like action sports, you know, shooting sports porn essentially is that things are moving so fast that you know, I, I'm amazed now because there are guys that have been doing it long enough that they're really artful in the way they shoot that stuff. Yeah. But back then, it was literally like you just had to make sure that the stuff was working and you had to make sure that you could keep up, you know. So if you're following someone down a mountain, you know, with the camera, you have to be almost as good of a snowboarder as the guy you're following because, you know, you there's no time to wonder if you're backlit properly or you know. how did you shoot that kind of stuff were you doing it with any kind of rig or anything or what what was the yeah like i had like all this i had this like airy s this old airy s that i had rigged up and i had modified with like onboard batteries and things so it was it was heavy as a small tank but it was um it was it was tiny for the day and um and it was self self sustaining in terms of power and whatnot, and I could literally just and I had like little rigs that I made up so I could just kind of you know hold the camera and it was it was was pretty low fi you know a couple of handles and stuff, but I was just following people around and just put the death lens on the front and just follow people around where I think I started learning a lot more about the filmmaking process is. These guys at Digital Kitchen were starting this this office here in Chicago, and they were they were tiny they were a tiny company up in Chicago, like or in Seattle, like six six or eight people or something, and they were, and they were starting to get big, and they were doing a lot of film titles and things, and they wanted to start this office in Chicago, or maybe they even had started it here in Chicago, but it was it was two or three people. And so they invited, they, they wondered if I'd be interested in coming and kind of running the creative at that office. So at the time, it seemed like the type of work they were doing was amazing. And so I just decided to, you know, uh, my company was, you know, so small. And we just, I just, we just decided that we, you know, it was time to kind of move to bigger and better things. And so... I uh, I moved to Chicago and and ran that office for about five years, and during that time, the company just exploded, and we were doing tons of work. Um, you know, like God, we had we had so much work going through that place, and just and I was shooting, and I started shooting a lot, and we were shooting, you know, and and again, I was at the at first, I was completely unqualified to be doing the level of projects I was doing. And um, totally unqualified, but you know, how did that work though? I mean, did that show? Did or or were you kind of no, fixing no, it in post? No, no. <laughs> no, we were fixing everything in post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was the thing about that company. We had great, we had amazing, we had amazing designers there. We had a couple of amazing visual effects people. Like we went from literally, like while I was there, I got there, and I think I was the sixth person in the office, and they had just basically got it up and running and you know as create I was handling all the creative there and then we grew so fast and it went from 
managing it was like a six person office to like a hundred person office wow in two years and i went from managing like two other designers or creative directing two other designers to um to having you know 20 or 25 designers and two editors in the chicago office and then and then i was also handling a lot of the stuff you know kind of uh, running creative direction for some of the Seattle stuff. And so there was only, at that time, there was only like two or three of us in the, in, in the entire company that had ever shot anything. So by default, you know, you were it, you know, if the job came in and it needed to be shot, you know, it was probably, if it came in to our office, I was going to be the one who shot it for a while anyway. And, um, so I, you know, that's, if anything, I, I really learned, learned quickly through that, you know, through, you know, trial by fire. Yeah. So what was the kind of range of projects that you were working on there? It was more than just title sequences, I take it. It was a lot of title sequences. We did a lot of work for HBO promos and things. I did a lot of work for like promos for like Sex in the City and Sopranos. And I did a, uh. Uh, yeah, title sequence for uh, Rescue Me, which is still on my reel. Yeah, that that is uh, probably I think the best TV show title sequence I've ever seen. Oh, thanks. Seriously, it's 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 so effectively uh, kind of captures a a gritty lived in mood, you know, with the well, uh, the images of the punching bag and the flying birds, and and you, you don't see the characters at all from the show except for that like that wonderful shot of Dennis Leary in the fire truck. You know. Yeah, and that's just a that's a situation where when you can shoot something and the people that the show is really geared towards really respond to it. Like, you know, I live in Chicago now and and no joke, like probably a couple like a couple of times now I've been in situations where I've been at like restaurants or things like that and I've overheard, you know, like Southsiders. Chicago, you know, South Side is all like the the heavy working class. That's where all the firemen live, you know, firemen, all the cops and everything. I've overheard conversations where people are just talking about the title sequence. It's and, amazing, yeah. And when you can and and totally, you know, they're not talking to me about it. They're talking to somebody else about it. Yeah. And when you can when you can overhear you hear something like that, that's that's a warm and fuzzy feeling right there. Yeah. You know, it's um and that was just something, you know, that was, that job taught me a lot. You know, that job ultimately inspired stuff like Breathe because that job was myself and a friend of mine who's a, a DP. And we literally, we just, we, we had a bit, very basic brief from Dennis as, as to what he wanted. He wanted to feel, he wanted to create the 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 experience he wanted to create the the experience of the city and he wanted to make it have a cadence and a feel of a man rushing to a fire yeah. and that was that was all we were given and um and so we spent a couple of days running around in new york with you know 16 millimeter cameras i shot a lot of that stuff um my dp shot a lot the guy sitting on the step in that thing is actually my DP. Oh, really? The guy at the yeah. end? That's all. Yeah. yeah that's the guy excellent. with his hands. 
that was, uh, they called us at the last second and said, hey, we really want to put some humanity in this thing while we were shooting it. And it's like, uh, all right, well, we haven't cast anyone. What does this guy look like? They kind of described the, t- the person that they want. And I'm like, well, what if it was like this guy? And I sent them a picture of this guy and they're like, oh, that's perfect. And so I just had him run down the street and sit on his stoop. Like everything in that thing, other than the fire truck sequences, um, and even some of the fire truck sequences, everything in that thing is like poached. You know, we 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 ran around and just shot. It's very. It, I mean, we we had a we had a um, a brief of what we wanted. We had a list. You know, we knew what we wanted to capture, but but uh, probably the most fun shoot that I've ever been on because it was. Uh, you know, just three days of just capturing stuff. And did you guys get um, get any kind of uh, direction at all from, uh, like, were you able to see the footage from the show? Because it doesn't really feel like the show. You know, it, it has its own feel to it. It was happening while the show was being created. It was basically, no, we hadn't really seen anything. But, you know, I, I kind of, we, we did get on the call with Dennis, and he he, you know, he has a certain way about him and you kind of know what he would like and his um his son actually it was funny because i you know i'm from detroit originally and and um the band i was at the time i was really into this band called the von bondies and uh you know detroit rock has this kind of grit to it um and uh the von bondies kind of encapsulated that and and uh you know, when he told me his son was like, yeah, his son recommended this Von Bondi song, the, the, the come on, come on song. And, uh, his son was like, apparently into these guys as well. And as soon as, as soon as I heard that that was going to be the song, that's the one thing I did know that going into it, um, like the first, like the day before we shot, I knew that that, that we were going to be using that song. And I was so into that song. So it was almost like, I kind of knew what to shoot just because of it, just because of the attitude of both how Dennis had briefed us and then how the song, you know, and, and what that song did for me, it was a pretty, pretty easy equation. It does seem like that sequence, um, the title sequence for rescue me kind of set the table for a lot of the, uh, you know, other title sequences that, that FX, uh, you know, did like damages for instance. Um, and, uh, justified like the those title sequences have a very similar feel uh, to uh, to the rescue me uh, title sequence and I wonder you know how much of an influence that was because that was you know I think that was one of the first shows that the first dramatic shows after the shield that FX uh, commissioned yeah I don't I don't know I, I don't know it's like the one thing I do know is that we got a lot of flack for it when we first did it really and, from who uh, well just it was so, it was so in your face and gritty. And yeah. up till up till that point, um, you know, just just from people at the network and and just even even uh, you know people, just general people in the industry. I, I just remember getting a lot of flack for it because back then, you know, Digital Kitchen had been known for doing like you know they did the titles for like six feet under. Right. um, It's a very classical kind of stuff. Yeah. And Nip Tuck. I worked on the Nip Tuck title sequence. And, um, 
Yeah, I and, forgot that. But that's a very good one as well. And, uh, you know, it's like a lot of those, and they have a certain, they're very good. You know, I, I loved them all. They're all classic pieces. But they yeah. had a certain kind of mystery that unfolded, and um, and they were slower. And this, and the, and the Rescue Me one was the first piece that was just like kind of in your face, like, fuck you. This is, this is it. Yeah. And, um, it just wasn't, you know, anytime you do something that, that's kind of different, that's kind of, especially something that's a little bit abrasive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that to me was a very natural progression because it, it just came straight from all the skate videos and, you know, you could, the roots of that are in, you know, old Paul Peralta videos and things like in Santa Cruz videos that I would watch or yeah. things I would cut together for snowboarding, you know, that, that was, that was my thing, you know, but, um, but, uh, it, you know, it, it just met a lot of, uh, it made a lot of people uncomfortable at first. Prior to it being uh, released with the show? Uh, after it got released with the show. I mean, it, it, there was no problem with it getting released with the show um, because Dennis was just, that's what he wanted, you know, and it was his show. Was there ever a discussion to try to tone it down? There was, no, no, never, never to tone it down. There was discussions on whether they should add footage from the show into it more you know kind of cut in footage of the show but that was to make it a little bit more traditional yeah that was squashed pretty quickly when you're doing a, a piece like that what's a typical kind of budget range for something like that like a title sequence in that vein uh back then they ranged um i'll tell you that that piece was super low budget um i think that the overall shoot for that piece was 20 grand, I think, something like that. I mean, the overall budget for that might have been 100 grand. You know, I don't know what they are now. Back then, they used to be more than that. They would be, you know, 100 to 200. They were certainly less than commercials, but they were also passion projects, so everyone wanted to work on them. You know, so we got a lot of, it really wasn't a problem getting people to kind of put their time into something. You know, provided we could get it shot. So you mentioned that you had worked at Digital Kitchen for about five years. What uh, led to you leaving Digital Kitchen, and where did you go from there? Digital Kitchen got to a point where there were so many people there that I, I was spending my time um, doing human resources more than creative at the end. You know, when you have that many designers, you're dealing with, like, how come I'm not getting paid enough, and or how come... You know, how, you know, I want to go home early, but all these other people are staying till dawn. Why can't I, you know, that kind of thing, you know, and, uh, you know, I tried to handle all that stuff as best I could, but it, it's, I wanted to make stuff and, and I had been making stuff. So, um, I left and I went to, I got immediately with, uh, Crossroads Films um, which is kind of an older, more reputable company out of L.A. Yeah, so how did that work, though? Did you put your reel together and kind of shop it around to places? I had the pieces that I directed. I had, um, at that point, I had shot a huge range of stuff. and um, But I had about 
about five or six pieces that I thought were were really good and I was I was really careful about you know because when you're with digital when you're with a design company like that and you're and you're doing stuff there's a real like there's a like everyone feels like they own it because you have you know everyone touches it for a long time um, so I I took about five or six pieces that I felt like I had a, like a pure ownership of at least in terms of at least in terms of I was the one who sat in the chair and the and the idea was primarily you know the idea came from me and you know I just took those pieces as my base reel and just you know kind of shopped it around with the knowledge you know with with also at that point with the knowledge that uh, you know, here's what I've done. Here's what I physically shot, and here's you know, and here's the other skill sets I have. So this is what the, these types of things. You know, I I know I know design. I I know visual effects. I you know I've literally sat on the box physically doing a lot of that stuff. So it's like I know how to shoot it right. And, I, and I've edited and all that stuff. So it was kind of, at that point, it was like I had a few key pieces. And then I also had a bit of a, of a song and dance about, you know, my value, the value added, the value I could provide. When you put those pieces together on your reel, were they kind of of the same piece? Were they sort of in the same genre? They were a little bit, they were much more disparate than my reel is now. Um, they were, they all looked like they came from me. Um, they all had a bit of something in it. I think you said movement. I, I think a lot of my stuff has that and they all kind of had an, an edge to them. Um, and I mean, I think there was a few pieces that were wild. There was like one or two that were kind of wild cards. How did you go about putting that reel together? Did you kind of uh, did you work with an editor to t kind of test out what what spot leads better into the next spot, or was there was there even that much uh, forethought into it? I mean, there was forethought, but I I just put it together myself. I just I just cut it all together, and uh, at the time I had been I think I had a like little personal projects as well or things things that were partially done that I could show at the company that this is the this is the other stuff I'm working on and and that kind of thing but it was it it was actually I didn't I didn't find it that hard to get signed by you know I had because I already had a couple of pieces you know it wasn't like I was starting from scratch there wasn't a lack of people ready to sign me it was more about just picking a company I thought would stick up for me a little bit. Um, I was definitely a little bit naive. Um, I had never really shot myself around as a director. I'd never acted independently of a company as a director. Um, but I found immediately there was five or six companies that were willing to take me on. But very few were able to just say, yeah, we can, you know, we're going to push you. We're going to get you some work. And by push you, does that mean like they're going to give you some money to do spec stuff as well, and they're going to kind of help develop your career? No, we didn't talk about that. I mean, we should have. 
Um, but <laughs> well, what does that mean though when they say they're gonna they're, they're gonna push you and get you work? Well, they're gonna push you, meaning that they're they're going to really they're excited to have you there. Yeah, and they're gonna they're gonna make sure that their reps are going to get your stuff out into the world. Right, and they're because, gonna put a press release out there that you signed with their company, and they're gonna they're gonna put yeah. do a little bit of, of of a show about you. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna definitely put a press release out there. It's gonna get into you know shoot and all the other avenues, and it's going to and and we're gonna and our reps are excited to have you, and and they're gonna put your stuff in front of the rest of the world. And you know, and I know a lot more about this stuff now, but it really is important because it's like what I I don't know a lot of people realize about companies and their reps but a, a few co- a few uh, production companies have their own they ha- they have their own reps in house but only a very few most of them um, most com- most production companies uh, have a partnership with a repping firm and that re- and that repping firm you know reps uh, you know several other production companies and so you know, if they're not, you know, you can very easily, even if the roster on the company you're at is relatively small, um, you can very easily get lost in the mix because they might have two or three other directors from a different company that do almost exactly what you do. So um, getting a commitment from the, uh, from the individual reps and you know, getting being able to get them on the phone and that kind of stuff was uh, was really important to me. And was that a, a major part of your decision in signing with uh, Crossroads? That yeah, that was a major that was a major part at the time. Yeah, you know, they were the ones that they were the ones that were the most excited, and they were the ones that you know um, came to me with a little bit of a plan. And uh, and more and more, you know, I've I, I was at Crossroads for about you know the first a, any director, no matter whether you have some work or whether you're starting out, the first couple of years is going to be really hard. I think. I mean, unless you're incredibly lucky, um, it's going to be really hard. And uh, you know, so I I spent like I think a year and a half or something with them. And I did a couple of jobs, but they were relatively smaller jobs. When you initially sign with them, like what what happens after you sign? Are you are you kind of briefed on on what the process is going to be like as far as getting boards, or do you already know that? Given uh, that you worked at uh, Digital Kitchen, or how different is it uh, between the two companies uh, when you move from Digital Kitchen to Crossroads? Well, it was it was totally different because um, in the commercial world at Digital Kitchen, you know. At Digital Kitchen, we would have, you know, a bunch of designers there. If we got a project in, you know, projects would come in and we would literally concept them start to finish. You know, people would come in with nothing and we would start and concept it. And we would have four or five designers all pitching the job. And you'd literally be able to go into a client with a book. And I, and that was – my job was basically managing that. So it's like you would – I would I would take a download from the client and and I would go back and we'd talk I'd talk with designers and and they and sometimes I would all get together and we'd all create individual um what we called right solutions 
to their pro to their problem. And we would literally we would literally give them a book at the end of the day with like seven or eight different completely different spots that all tackled the problem from a from an, a unique way but also a right way so they could like literally pick and choose which one they wanted to go with um how complex were those ideas did you do any storyboards or script no they're they're completely boarded out start to finish wow really so yeah. so you you guys spent a lot of time just on that that portion of it i take it yeah yeah totally but also in the design world a lot of times because people come to design companies um with less usually um a lot very often times those things are paid for as well like it won't, won't be huge money but they'll come and they'll 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 have a they'll have a pitch fee essentially and you can so you can actually put some designers on it and even if even if it was a situation where i was running two or three different projects i could I could get a couple of designers, and even if it was a point where I had a couple of ideas, I could have some people working on those ideas because there was money there to do that. So before a project would even start, there'd be kind of this this process where you go to the uh, you go to the company, the client, and then you 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 put forth a budget of what the just what the kind of preliminary just putting the ideas together would be, and then from there you would work out a budget for the actual idea that they go with. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, with and and usually there was discussions as to, you know, they would come to us and they'd say we have this about this amount of money, you know, and we would try and design things that would fit within that budget. And uh, you know, it's it's a totally different experience in in the director world, you know, independent director world, you know, as many of your previous guests have said it's you don't get paid for that you know and um and where you stand in terms of when when you talk to an agency if there's anything that was similar um between digital kitchen and what i do now is just the fact that it got me really adept at at speaking with the client and kind of listening to them very carefully and figuring out where they wanted to go and how comfortable they were about, you know, evolving an idea, you know, how close you had to be. Could you go completely off in a totally different direction or had they, or do, or is it already, you know, or, or is it totally preconceived and you're just, it, your job is to nuance it. You know, that's, that's the one thing that, that, you know, talking to, you know, so many different agencies that was that was the thing that carried over yeah and it feels like when you when you go into uh, directing for a production company that you're given a lot less creativity than you would as a uh, you know somebody at a, running a design firm where you you have the opportunity to come up with the idea and present them with a bunch of ideas and then they they kind of pick what what fits their their um, you know their brand it, it's way it's way harder i'll tell you like the things at, you know, you get lazy in a design company. You know, when you're on your own, um, it's a totally different experience because, you know, every job is, you know, every job you're, you're, you're fighting for it like it's your last job. You know, and in a design company, it's it's a lot more fluid. And then 
also, you know, even just all, every process in, in terms of how the job is, is done and posted in the design company, like we had editors, we had visual effects people. If you had a, if you had an issue, you would just go hand it to this guy and he would, and he would, uh, work on it and fix it. It was all equated into the budget, you know, but, um, but the, uh, you know, in, as a director, you know, my biggest problem has, you know, my first hurdle was just getting the jobs, understanding how to pitch a job and win a job. And then, and then the, the next thing, and, and it, and it's always an ongoing process is, especially because a lot of my jobs are so visual or the jobs that involve effects or, or, you know, more aggressive editing or something like that is, is how can you actually, you know, how can you guide the process so that you can get that thing made the way you want it to be made? Because you certainly can't micromanage it in the same way you could in a design company. You have to be much more um, skillful in the way that you talk to people, and you have to be much more, much more on point. And you and you literally have to be, you know, the 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 smartest guy, because you have to know everything about that job, so that when you're talking to an editor or you're talking to a visual effects person, there's nothing left to chance. How do you prepare for uh, a conference call with uh, with a creative or creatives? What's your preparation like? Um, or at least, let, let me ask you. Let me modify that. What was it like then when you were starting out, and and how did you uh, change it given your experiences? Well, I'll tell you. Like the way I pitch jobs, um, in terms of preparing for a con- for an initial conference call, I don't really prepare. Like I used to get. I used to go totally overboard. As soon as I got a board in, I would immediately start, you know, coming up with all these concepts and things. And now I don't do any of that. I get a board in and I look at the board. I get a couple of, you know, a couple of brief ideas. But usually I like to get a board in and get on, get on the phone with an agency as soon as possible because I don't come up with anything in my head that's going to be like I try and be as as efficient with my brain power as I can, and I don't I don't think about anything. I'll get a board in, like I just got a board in a few minutes ago, like you know, and, <laughs> right? And I looked at it and I saw it and I talked to the I talked to my production company about it for a few minutes just to like you know is this possible kind of thing? Yeah, it's possible. You know, um, I give them the I give them my two cents on it. And, and what, what does that mean, though? Possible is it possible given the budget, or possible? Well, yeah, they they call me up, and this particular board was uh, had uh, quite a bit of visual effect work in it, and it had a lot of different. Um, it, it was it's more of a math equation. It's not even a creative one. It's it's it had a lot of visual effects in it, and it had a lot of different locations in it, and they had a, approximately a certain budget, and which equates to you know two days of time and um and you look at it and you go okay in two days i know i know from experience i can do this this and this and this and this and this one is within that range or maybe this shot might be a little long or something but it's like you know 
it's it's basically just a math equation. Can this be done for this budget? You know, um, when I started out, I would get something in and I'd be so like into doing it that anything was possible. And yeah. now, <laughs> you know, anything was possible. Right. And You're like, I'll, I'll shoot that with my 7D. Yeah. Yeah, until you get out there with your 7D, and then you're just like, and then it's not possible. So I've learned very quickly to, the, when I get a board in, it's a quick evaluation. Does this jive? Does what they're saying in terms of their budget and their enthusiasm jive and their money jive with what I'm seeing on the page that they've given me? And, and uh, if... If it looks like it does, then I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll get on the phone with them. If it, if it's, you know, even if it's close, I'll get on the phone with them. But if it's, if it's something I look at and I get like probably a board a week or maybe a board every two weeks that I, that I look at and it's just like, there's no way, you know, and it's so far out, you know, and, and I know (coughs) from, you know, it's the same, like listening to some of your other podcasts with your other directors, it's the same everywhere. You get something in and, and, and you have to like, and you know that these, the agency has spent probably six months of their time trying to sell this thing through. And if you get something in, if you get something in front of you that's just, you know, looks like you're going to shoot Saving Private Ryan, but they only have like enough, barely enough budget for a day. You know, it don't. You know, I, I just let those go. You know, or usually I call, have them call up and say, you know, are they willing to, are they willing to evolve this in some way? You know, at the very least. But but you know, there's no sense in like wasting brain power over something that's never going to happen. Do you find that uh, kind of because of the uh, technology getting so much cheaper? That a lot of uh, a lot of clients are like, oh, well, we can just do it like this, and we can just do it, you know, we just just throw a five D on set, you know, and we'll have a, you know what I mean? Like, is it kind of uh, is is there that kind of mindset taking over a bit? No, the the only thing I see it's the clients really don't know enough about the technology by and large. Like some of them will know the buzzwords, they'll know about the five D. Or they'll know about the 70, and they're certainly not. They know about it enough. They've heard about it enough that they aren't scared of it. Like if a job, I don't do a lot of jobs that are strictly DSLR, but um, but I've done a couple. And and um, if a, you know if a job comes in and it's really creative, but it doesn't have a lot of money, and I'm not scared to say let's shoot this with the 5D, you know. But that's usually coming from me, and that's usually not them getting um you know they're not they're not the one initiating that um it's usually where i see the issue with budgets coming down is that there's a lot of you know and i and i see it coming from originally from a design company there's a lot of smaller companies out there that are like web shops and things yeah that have started moving into more rich content and a lot of like web video and that kind of stuff and they've had a certain amount of luck with some of their clients doing little online videos and things. And the web world is, you know, it's a, it's, it's a world without, uh, without a lot of rules. You know, you, don't, you can kind of shoot things the way you want. You usually don't have, there's not a lot of money in it. Um, and, they, 
and they get a lot of freedom to do this stuff. But that's not necessarily the same as shooting a, a, a like a fully like a fully guaranteed production. So a lot of times people where I see the issue with any costs coming down is they'll say, you know, uh, they'll say they have a certain budget and you'll say, well, that's not possible. You know, that you have, you know, 40 scenes or something ridiculous that you want to shoot in a day. That's, I can tell you that's not possible. You know, I can tell you that the most I've ever shot is this many and, and, and that was too many. And, um, and they'll say, well, so-and-so says that they can do it for that. You know, and it's like, well, you know, go for it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and at that point, really the only thing you can do, um, and I've seen this, I've seen, a, I've, I've been privy to a couple of really brilliant um, uh, executive producers, the really smart ones tend to have a very subtle way of being able to, when they're, when they're confronted with that kind of situation, they have a very subtle way of just, it's even a raised eyebrow or something where they literally will just go to the agency producer and say something that expresses a little bit of doubt. Like, are you sure you want to do that? You know, like, are you sure, are you really sure you want to, you know, because the last thing any agency producer wants, all they, all an agency producer cares about is getting the job done, getting it done, and looking good for the price they want. And if there's any possibility that that job will not get done, if there's any doubt, the, the fear will come out immediately. And so uh, a, really good, a really good executive producer can kind of navigate those seas and, um, and you know when 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 they try and when they try and cheap out or they think they're going to go to some some untested entity, it's just a matter of like, are are you sure that's what you want to do? So what was it like for the year and a half that you were with Crossroads? Uh, it was slow. Was it was it slow because <laughs> it <was> lonely? <laughs> Did you feel supported by the company? I felt very supported by the company. I didn't feel very supported by a lot of the reps that had told me that they were going to support me. And, um, and I literally, I remember, I remember when I was, and, and let me, let me just say this because Crossroads is an amazing company They're filled with some amazing people. They have some good directors, the nicest people in the world. Um, but I knew I was done when I talked to one of the reps who had their, I talked to, the rep in New York, because I had at that time through Digital Kitchen, I had done maybe twenty jobs the previous year in New York, and I'm like, I haven't even seen a board out of New York in a year, and they're like, and they're like, well, we got you, we got you one last year, and I'm like, yeah, but I haven't seen anything this year, <laughs> and and they're like. Well, you're doing better than all the other directors. Really? Yeah, you're doing all yeah, all cuz they had like two or three directors that were, you know, they would basically funnel everything through. And they and they were like the senior guys and they got the first pick at everything. And then they had about 10 of us that were like, well, if those guys don't work, we'll use these guys. Yeah. You know. 
And so, when she told me that I was doing, I had only gotten one board and I was doing better than all the other directors, I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go. <laughs> do you talk to the other directors when you're at a company like that? Do you guys, uh, do you guys ever get together? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, this is, this is something I've noticed, and I, it's a, it's a pure generalization. DPs can like hang out they're all best friends they talk they share all kinds of stuff with each other oh i know like, yeah all best friends the nicest guys in the world but directors you put them in a room and it's like it's like cats fighting it's like they're all everyone's so there's so many egos there's so many different um sensibilities and everyone within the company feels like they're vying for the same thing that um, I remember, <laughs> I remember Crossroads. They had a, uh, um, uh, they had a dinner once where they invited all the directors to dinner, and it was like literally the most tense dinner I've ever been in. <laughs> like we all just sat there seething, staring at each other, right? <laughs> like staring daggers. And it's like. And if you're there, I remember I went there and there was um, one director who did a lot of music videos. And he had done this, uh, a couple of music videos recently that I thought were really good. And I turned to him and I, and I commented that I thought his stuff was really great. And that was apparently the wrong thing to say for all the other directors that were there. Because they just wanted to kill me after that. Well, then yeah, you had to compliment everybody else. Yeah, because I wasn't complimenting them. Yes, I really like that deodorant spot that you did uh, last month. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm not saying it's impossible to put a bunch of directors together, but I, I, I think it's highly improbable. What precipitated you leaving, and, and what did you do uh, when, you, when you did leave? Did you already have a, a company to go to? Yeah, you know, I started looking, but I, I, I signed with a company called, like a smaller company called A Very Small Office, which was um, kind of a subdivision of su supply and demand. And they were out of New York. And they were a much more, they're, they're a much more friendly option to me because the guy, the, the director that had started the company, I had gone to grad school with. And he was really successful, and he was being he was working like gangbusters, and and uh, he and I had very similar backgrounds and similar pedigrees in the way that we did things, and so he was working so much that it just seemed like an obvious choice to bring me in because I could not only take the business in a new direction in terms of some of the work that I was doing, but I also was you know had some overlap in the kind of stuff that he was doing, some of the more design-oriented stuff. And so they were able to kind of flow me some of the jobs that he couldn't do. So that was actually a really good fit for a while. I, and I was with that company for about four year, three or four years. And um, it was really good. Um, like I thought they were, they were really good. Um, the only issue I ended up having with them at the end of the day was that um, I noticed, and it really wasn't an issue with them, it was an issue with me. Um, I noticed that my style was evolving. The things I was interested in were really starting to evolve into a totally different direction. And they were very much rooted in um, a very specific kind of niche market. They were doing a lot of a lot of fashion stuff, 
They were doing a lot of design-oriented product stuff. They were doing some tabletop stuff. And I was competent in all those things, but that wasn't my gig. You know, as almost anyone will tell you, you get anything you do is a niche market and you get pigeonholed really fast. And, and uh, I wasn't doing, in my personal work, I wasn't doing that much design stuff. I was doing, I was kind of gearing towards more, kind of more people-oriented. I don't think it was really DACO, but more just getting natural performances from people and and also like visual kind of more visual storytelling or or bigger you know visual effects style jobs that was kind of what was really interesting to me and um they just weren't they just they they just weren't in that mindset you know they they didn't have reps that could go out and find that stuff and and uh you know it just was a situation where you know, I think we kind of outgrew each other. How do you go about guiding your your reel? I mean, it it, it seems like if, if I look at a lot of your spots, there's there's certain um, there's a certain style that that you've done a lot where it's kind of uh, you do these sort of transitions where uh, one person is walking and then uh, another person's walking in that exact same space. Yeah. Match cuts. Yeah, ma- yeah, exactly. Match cuts. Yeah, yeah, you want to talk about getting pigeonholed? Oh my <laughs> god! Yeah, so you did a bunch of those for uh, Blue Cross, right? And you did a bunch of those for yep. for all kinds of various companies. You do one. I did when I was at Crossroads. I did um, the spot for Wrangler, and I did that spot, and I did that one on a kind of a shoestring budget, and it turned out really great. And um, that like opened up a floodgate. You know, and literally, I think maybe it's just because that that particular style, if you think about it from an advertising perspective, um, you know, it solves a lot of problems, you know, like you can, we're this, but we're, we're not this, we're that, we're this, but we're, we're that, you know, we do this and this, our, our business specializes in this, this, and this. Yeah, you can show it for every race. Every, if you can show every possible opportunity every possible thing in in a in a spot and and that's why it's popular i don't think that it's particularly effective that way i think that in a situation like wrangler um where you're just showing one guy you know and his walks of life that was a very suitable you know um suitable like you know purpose for that but but yeah i did that thing and like immediately it was like match cut guy you know and it <laughs> and it's interesting because each time i've gotten one and i still get them the the board i just got was a match cut board and and the first I, board the first uh, spot on your um on on the uh, hello uh, website is the uh the the dick sporting goods uh, spot yeah is- i mean that was a little spot that was you know just a little a, a different variation of the match cut thing you know it's like I'm not going to complain because fortunately they're not the board those boards aren't coming as fast as they used to you know like it used to be like every single board I got for about 8 or 9 months was a match cut board it's like come on you, you know that's where the personal work comes in you go and make something different and you make it really good and then you're that thing you know so when you go out and you know the the advice that that I would have for anyone making anything is make what you want not what you think people want because 
if it turns out good, you're going to be stuck with it, and that's what you're going to be doing. You know, don't go out and make a tabletop spot because you think ad agencies want that. Because if you don't like it, you know, you'll you'll get what you deserve, and uh, and people <laughs> people will uh, people will call on you for that. But yeah, the the match cut thing. Each time I get one, I try and do something. I try and take it in a different direction. You know, I try and you know apply a different angle to it to make it a little bit different, a little bit more entertaining. No, definitely, and there is there is a lot of variation in like the you know the discover card shopping uh, spot compared to like the the Dick's uh, the Dick's sporting goods spot. I mean, those are they, they employ kind of the same idea, but they're they're done very differently. Yeah, and it's just you know it's just trying to you know it just trying to have fun with it, I guess. You know, trying to trying to have fun with it and trying to. Um, give it something that no one's really seen before and also trying to, you know, be true to what the, the, the agency or the client's trying to, trying to get across, you know, it, it shouldn't just be an effects, uh, an effect for effects sake. And I think a lot of times when people come to me with that, they really haven't, the one thing I've noticed is that they usually don't, have a clear idea of what they really want so they've tried to collage it together in some way to to solve their problem and so my job when I get one of those boards is to really listen to them and and even do some research on on the the product or on the uh, on the you know the company and find out what they're really all about. You know, I talk to the clients. I, I just try and get as much information so that I can give them the technique that they want, but but also to, you know, to infuse it with a little bit more of a soul. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, I try and vary it up so it's not just the technique either because I think the technique by itself just falls kind of flat if you don't, you know, juice it up in some other way. And you mentioned uh, before that you had done some some tabletop stuff um, previously. Um, what, so what what's that? We, we haven't really talked about that at all on the show. Uh, what's that kind of like? And just to, just for people who don't know, uh, tabletops are are essentially their um, kind of beautiful product videos, right? It's where you uh, you're shooting um, the the product in the the most pristine way you can, and you're you're making it look great. And that's that's uh, it could be for ketchup or uh, or yeah. uh, makeup or something. Yeah, in my case, it was a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> was that the uh, the uh, the Molson slide? Was that was that one of those? Um. A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Like Molson Slide represents kind of the fusion of the two worlds. I think that I'm dealing with right now. It's um because like when I was at the design company, you would do things. There were some spots you would do that would be almost purely tabletop. It would just be all product and design. You know, type moving in and out of liquid or or you know something like that. You know, or like um products you know rearranging themselves in different ways you know in, in a design fashion you know type being spelled out by product you know there's all kinds of like little jobs you do like that in a design company 
and and with motion graphics. So I had a lot of experience just from that stuff making product look good. Um, so for a long time, when I first left there, the because I also had there's a lot of these jobs out there um, that are they want humanity, but then they also they really want the product to look good too. They always want to put a product in there and they want the product to look good. And whereas back in the day when budgets were unlimited, they would hire uh, a guy to shoot just the live action and the people, and then they'd hire a guy to shoot the product, and and they'd put them together at the end. But the budgets won't stand for that anymore. So someone who can do both or who at least is competent in the product side, you know, there's, there's room to move there. So that's, I did a lot of those jobs for a while. A lot of, you know, interesting, like the Molson would be one, you know, where you're just, you know, there's a couple of shots in there where, you know, the beer's got to look good, you know, but it's about something different. You know, there's, there's definitely people, there's humanity, there's, there's personalities. There's a bit of storytelling there. Um, I think there's. I think on the hello reel, there's another. There's a couple of uh, other bud spots that are, you know, could basically be broken down in the same way. They're good-looking product and good-looking people, you know. And there's a little bit of a story there and a little bit of a design edge or a, or an effect edge to them. Yeah, there's Budweiser World, which kind of combines the whole, um, you know, the match cutting kind of thing. Yep. with uh, with the uh, a little bit of tabletop, yeah, you know, and and I think there's a refresh bud refresh on there that's got similar things. It has a whole I call it the liquid center. <laughs> you know? Let's talk about the boards that you get for a little bit. How detailed are they typically? Do, do they completely vary from um, incredibly detailed to not very detailed? I'll I'll get a board sometimes that'll literally be so laid out that there'll be more than one frame a second already tested. And, you know, sometimes I'll do those jobs and sometimes I won't. It just depends on what, because sometimes you get a job like that and there's not a, a single thing that you could add to it. Um, and then sometimes I'll get, you know, uh, sometimes I'll get, uh, I just got a, a job like, uh, couple of weeks ago a month ago where they just sent me they sent me their deck and it was literally just a paragraph kind of descri describing what the spirit of what they were trying to go for and and the entire concept was mine to to make up which was you know it was also kind of frustrating because you feel like well what are you doing <laughs> but yeah but at the same time, you can uh, you can kind of take it wherever you want, right? You have the option of of uh, it's kind of like your old design days, you know, where you can you can kind of guide that. Yeah, and it, and you you determine those by the product. I, I determine those by the by the how creative. I get on the phone with the agency, and I see how enthusiastic they are. I determine it by you know if I think. You know, some things, you know, if you get a paragraph about a shampoo bottle, you know, there may not be much you can do with that shampoo bottle, you know, if they want to do something visual. If they, if, if you get a something and it's, you know, you know, for, 
you know, a sports thing or something like that, there might be a lot of different ways you can go with it. So it's like, I just, I just take those, I, I have no problem coming up with ideas for people, but I want to make sure that if I'm going to go the distance and I'm going to make something cool, that they're going to, that, that they're going to follow that and, and that, and then it has a potential to be great, you know, cause nothing's better. I mean, one of the reasons I do all those personal projects is because I want to do something a couple of times a year where it's completely from my hand because ultimately that refreshes my batteries, but it also lets people know how I think and, you know, they're hiring you for that and you want them to be able to have confidence in you and you want, you want to be able to have, I hesitate to use the word control, but it, it really is a certain amount of control over a job so that you can, if you're coming up for an idea, there's an ownership there and you should be trusted to take it all the way through. Just recently, you were hired to direct a, a Red Bull spot that got shut down right before the shoot. How common is that in the uh, commercial production world? Because that seems like a big uh, kind of cost hit for them to have it was, to... It was, it was really unfortunate. Um, I mean, I, I really ultimately don't know how, why, how or why it was shut down. Um, it, I, that was a company decision. It, they decided that the commercial was not... I don't, I, I don't, I don't really know. So it's like it, it certainly wasn't any any uh, issue that we were involved in. It was just uh, you know change of uh, where they wanted to put their money or whatever. But yeah, they they we did that whole commercial, pitched it, went out and uh, scouted for it. You know, got everything. I mean, it was going to be actually quite a big deal. And uh, and they yeah they they killed it. Probably, I think two days officially two days before we were to sh start shooting, but at that point, you know, that's the that's those are the things. It's really important on some level. There's there's great advantages to being with a production company. That's like, uh, you know, a, there's there's advantages and disadvantages to being in a production company that's a DGA signatory. Um, you know, I'm a member of the DGA. I had to sign with the DGA, you know, while I was with Crossroads after, you know, X number of jobs or something, X number of days. And, um, but when you're, when you're doing a DGA or a, or a union job, which this was, um, you know, there's people are guaranteed, um, people hired and, you know, the crew's hired and the crew's supposed to be there to work. And if you shut the job down, then there's uh there's a, fee that's involved with uh stopping that and how and, go ahead no no i was just gonna say everyone gets everyone i mean really the only thing they saved by shutting it down were you know a lot of their post costs and um you know and some insurance costs and things like that it happens more than you think i have i've had a couple of jobs and i don't really i would only be speculating to know why it's happening in a big picture but I've had um, in the last year, I had one job that was a massive job. Um, literally, it was uh, it was a six or seven hundred thousand dollar job, multiple multiple spots, 
I won't say for who, but uh, it's uh, it was multiple spots. We shot it. Um, grueling days. We shot it. This, the footage looked amazing. And, uh, and uh, about uh, two weeks after it got into editorial, about two weeks after it got into editorial, the company decided that they were going to take – you know, ultimately, there was a product involved, although, although we barely shot the product. They decided that they were going to not have that product or they're going to take the things in a different direction, and they just killed the entire campaign. Wow. I mean, it, it was a whole campaign I shot. It was so many spots. And um, there was like a cut, like a sixty, and a couple of thirties, and a bunch of fifteens, and uh, and they just ate it, you know. So when that happens, are you able to use any of that footage at all for your like as a spec kind of thing, or can you do anything with that, or or it's just gone? Uh, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. I'm still waiting to hear on that particular project um, because it wasn't. Uh, because they killed it before it was all totally edited, you know, um, if there was anything to be done with it, it would be probably something I'd have to put together on my own, you know, which is a thing, uh, something that other people might be interested to know. One of the things that I've learned over the years, and I do for every shoot, it's a requirement for every shoot, I won't even entertain not doing it, is that when I shoot, especially because of all the digital stuff, but I was doing it back when I was, you know, sh I was shooting film up until about a year and a half ago. I, I required that I got all the raw files and all the dailies, you know, in their purest form on a hard drive shipped to me at the end of every job. So, and now, you know, that we're shooting, I'm shooting usually, you know, either you know, Epic or Alexa or something like that, at the end of the day, I'll walk with a hard drive, a hard drive copy. And, and you know, it's a safety. Number one, it's like just another copy out there. If something goes wrong, footage gets lost, hard drives go bad, there's a duplicate of it. But it's also, you know, you never know when something's going to happen. You never know when, you know, a lot of times I'm involved with my editorials. Sometimes I'm not. It all depends on what the agency wants to do. Um, I try and be involved with all of it, but, uh, you know, you never know when they're going to, when someone's going to take it to some Captain Crunch editor or it's going to take, or it's going to go to, you know, a different place. And ultimately I'm hired for a vision and I want to, and I want to see that vision play out. It, it kind of kills me when the vision isn't played out. Um, it's like personally like a knife through the heart. <laughs> so it's, so I, I make sure that I have um, a copy of everything, and very often, um, on a good day, I'll usually, um, once I get the, an agency cut, um, on a really good day, everything works out perfectly, and what they cut is what, I, what my vision was, and, or what we cut together is what my vision was, and that's good to go. Very often times I'll have that footage and I'll be able to swap a shot here and there for a little bit of director's cut, you know. And sometimes I'll completely redo the whole thing, you know, just for my own, just to see the vision played out. I have a backlog of two or three spots that um, that are just waiting for, you know, those director cuts. You know? So on a union shoot, 
what happens if uh, a key member of the crew, uh, for whatever reason, doesn't show up? Is uh, is the day canceled, and and does insurance uh, cover it? What's uh, what's that like? And has, has that ever happened to you? I've had I've had my you know I, uh, last last fall is is really funny actually. Uh, one of my main DPs is a guy named Martin Algren, brilliant DP, guy's amazing, and um, he's a good friend of mine. He's he's uh, shot a lot of my stuff, and um, he got kind of sick. On the we were shooting three days and uh, big job, and he got kind of sick the first day, and I didn't really know how sick he was, but he he was just he just felt like he looked like he had a little bit of like the like a cold or something, and uh, as we were driving back to the hotel, um, he's like, yeah, I think I'm gonna stay in tonight. Um, we're gonna go out to you know, grab a bite to eat or something. And he's like, I think I'm going to stay in tonight. And he was just like, yeah, you know, that's what's, that's what sucks. You know, you, you're on set, you, you know, it doesn't matter how sick you get, you gotta, you gotta show up. And, and, uh, the next morning I get a call that he's in the hospital <laughs> and, and, uh, literally I get to set and, um, you know, my DP is in the hospital. And so, the producer comes up to me and he goes, well, we can, we can either cancel the day and try and make it up tomorrow or you could shoot it. <laughs> and so I shot the first half of the day. And fortunately, they ended, up, um, they ended up pumping him full of antibiotics and he got to set the second half of the day and saved my life. But I'll tell you, that taught me a lot about you know what to do if someone doesn't show up, but also how much I love having a really great DP. <laughs> right. <laughs> so did he have to match uh, to what you shot? No, I mean, he and I have very similar styles. I, I, like, I'm really comfortable shooting... Um, I'm really comfortable shooting projects and things that are smaller, where, it's, where they're more intimate, and, and, I, and I have... Uh, an exact knowledge of everything that's going on and have set up the lighting and everything. Um, in this case, uh, because I was dealing with an agency that was, uh, you know, not exceptionally needy, but really wanted to be in the know. I was spending a lot of time dealing with the agency and, and talking over different ways that the, the, uh, performances could go in the days prior. So I really didn't pay attention to, you know, how he was setting up the lighting and all that. I mean, I knew it, we had worked together so much that I knew he knew how I like to see things. So I, I, I trusted him. I wasn't, you know, micromanaging that. And, uh, he, he ended up, uh, thankfully we had a really good gaffer that kind of just lit it and, uh, kind of kept me in the loop of, as how Martin had planned to do some stuff. And just ran with it. But I'll tell you, like, I don't know how some of these guys do it. There's not a lot of them, but there's a few, you know, like Soderbergh types that yeah. both shoot and direct at the same time. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's so crazy. Yeah. Um, like Robert one, Rodriguez. Yeah. It's one thing if you go off and you're like doing, a, I guess if it's a, a film, that might be one thing. But when you have, when you have, 10 client behind you 
and you're trying to shoot and direct and then go back and talk to the client. Oh my just, God. That, it's a nightmare. I mean, yeah. That, that's the thing that really killed me. I have no problem shooting. It's, it's more just the logistics of running that triangle of trying to like keep everybody in the loop and trying to keep the actor, you know, performing and it was cold and yeah. Yeah. I well, don't want to. Do you find when you're when you're shooting and directing, I mean, is it tough for you to focus on an actor's performance as well as what you're doing with the camera, you know, keeping uh, keeping things where they need um, to be? Not really. I don't really um, – that's an interesting question. I don't really – I guess if – if it depends on the job, you know. It, uh, for, for purely visual stuff where it's just like um, – you know, when, you, when sometimes, sometimes jobs are just about the shot and just lo- getting an overall feel for the shot and getting some natural performances and just letting people go. And in, in that case, I have no problem. I can shoot and I can, at the end of each take or at the end of a couple of takes, I can give people pointers and, you know, because I'm, I'm really paying attention to the shot as it as it works on the whole. But, you know, if on the occasion that I do a job that is more dialogue driven or, you know, I don't do a lot of comedy, but I've done a few comedy pieces and those things are so, they're so specific in terms of the nuance that you need that I would have a really hard time trying to shoot something like that. And, and, uh, and, keep track of all the details. What advice would you give to someone who is looking at this world from the outside and doesn't even know where to start? The, the, the one piece of advice I give to almost everyone is to, make, to just make stuff. And I don't think there's necessarily a rhyme or reason to that. I mean, a lot of people have ideas as to what that is. But I think... Ultimately, people are going to look for your vision and your take on something. I mean, I think it is probably smart to kind of keep, if you're going to do multiple pieces that you want to sell or you want to sell yourself with, to kind of keep them in a certain genre or a certain style but um, or, or, or a theme or something. But I think, you know, I don't think it has to be, you know, commercials per se. You don't have to make things that you don't have to brand them as, 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 as someone else's product, even though I've been very guilty of doing that in the past. Um, I just think that no one's, you have to like, think about just the, the simple question is why would I hire you? You know, like why would I give you this job? What are you going to bring? Why are you so much better than everyone else? And you have to answer. You have to be able to answer that question honestly, and you know, and you have to be able to answer it. You know, you have to have the the a certain take on things um, when you're talking to people, but mostly you have to put in the time and do the work. You know, you got if no one's going to give you that badass Nike job, you know, you have to make something to earn that badass Nike job you know you, you have to have and even then you might not get it but you have to have you have to and you have to have more than one piece 
you know, like um, a perfect, an example of, you know, like one thing, a lot of people don't even know this, but I'm, I'm not ashamed of it, is that, you know, that junk truck piece that's on my reel. That, that's spec. I made it. All of it. I did, I, I did all the visual effects. I did everything. I shot it. I did, I did everything. Because I wanted to do visual. I wanted to do visual storytelling. I wanted to, I wanted to do bigger jobs. You know, the, the types of jobs I really loved seeing. You know, the stuff that like the Frank Budgen jobs, the big jobs, you know. The ones that had an interesting kind of visual visual arc or or interesting effects combined with with uh, storytelling and that kind of thing i wanted i wanted to i wanted those kind of jobs and you realize very quickly that no one just gives you those kind of jobs you have to make them you know if you want to do a big you know frank budgen frederick bond you know kind of job you have to like show people that you can do it and even then it's tough because those are really hard to make so, you know, you have, when I made that thing, I had one of them on my reel. And, you know, Frederick Bond has 10, you know, so it's, uh, but it's about, but it, it's, it's about like kind of creating the, creating the work that you want to do. You recently directed and shot a video called Breathe, inspired by the sport of crossfitting. And it's very much about movement and focus. And you shot it with a super shallow depth of field, which, which really brings you into the world of the subjects. Can you talk about that project a bit? Yeah, I mean, I really, I really like that piece. I, I like, you know, doing a lot of the things I do have so much preparation involved with them. And that's one of those things that was, uh, that was more just, always intended to be just kind of a little short film and it was done so quickly and it was like so spur of the moment i mean you know when you look at it it's really as far as the cinematography goes i can't really claim it's not going to win any awards but it's like but i feel like it really captures the essence of of the moment and the essence of of the sport and, um, you know, yeah, like, you know, the shallow depth of field was almost a necessity because in a lot of those places, they're just not that pretty, you know? So was that how you, how you initially, um, conceptualized it? Were you thinking to shoot it like that or did you shoot it like that because the environment was kind of so garish and, and didn't work on screen? No, I mean, it, it was... It was, that one was, it was very, it was kind of a spur of the moment thing. It was just about um, knowing enough about that place. I, I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess I did mean to shoot a lot of it, you know, fairly shallow because I wanted to stay focused on the, uh, the athletes and, and I didn't want it to be about the space and I wanted to get you know, in, I wanted, I wanted to feel like, I wanted the viewer to feel like they were part of the experience. And I want, and I really wanted, I wanted the visuals to kind of represent that. I wanted to be a little bit closer than you normally would be to somebody. 
um, when we shot it. And I wanted the, um, and I really went into it. If there was any overriding concept, it was just to, to visually feel like you were in the moment, in the moment, in the extreme moment of, with those athletes, but then also to try and experiment with some things that I had not really done a lot of, you know, with, with regard to sound Mm -hmm. and um, trying to create an an immersive environment with the sound. Absolutely. And it it is very immersive. Did you record all that sound? uh, Was that sound from the physical environment or was that a, like an ADR post kind of situation? No, it was all, it was all from the physical environment. That's all them doing their thing. And, um, and I mean, I did record some additional, I believe I recorded some additional sound um, after the fact of of them doing the same things, you know, just to have some some layers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty much it's pretty much the sound you see on that is is the is the sound that was happening, right? You know? And, and was, just go ahead, sorry. No, and just setting up um, just setting up you know mics and things to try and really capture that without a lot of background noise and things. And why did you do that project? That wasn't a professional project, right? That was a a personal project for you? Yeah, you know, I have this thing, you know, I was listening to a lot of your, a lot of your, um, you know, your your previous guests talking about things, and uh, especially talking about spec, and it seems to be kind of a universal kind of thing that people do and mm-hmm. feel they need to do and and I certainly always feel like I need to have something something in the hopper you know I have a whole I have a whole book like a sketchbook that I every time I come up with new ideas I I kind of write them down and I have literally a whole folder full of ideas and images and things of things that I want to do given a certain situation so you know, if if I'm shooting a commercial and maybe there's a day or two in between when I do a tech scout and when I'm actually shooting, or maybe the tech scout is the commercial's fairly simple and the tech scout is, you know, um, the tech scout's going to be pretty quick, but all the crew's going to be there already. I'll have an idea ready to go. You know, so it's like, hey, we'll do their tech scout, and then it's like, well, hey, why don't we go shoot this? You know, now, so it's like, and so I ha- always have these ideas, and and for a while I was doing those very much in, you know, to- specifically towards, you know, making spec spots, putting logos on them, you know, making them for something, but a little while ago I just decided that that really wasn't what I wanted to do. I, I felt like I, I felt like what people are ultimately coming to me for is, is my creativity. And I didn't really feel like I needed to throw a logo on it. And so what I've done now is I've kind of moved into a direction where when I do these things, um, I try and make, I try and just make like short films, but maybe they're more, commercial like you know there's something that they're not so abstract or they're not so experimental 
that someone from an agency or someone, you know, that I could actually use them later on in some kind of promotional aspect for me. And they become really enjoyable kind of exercises or charrettes that I can, that I can kind of experiment with something new or try something that's maybe out of my comfort zone. And then at the end of the day, they're not like, they're not really branded. They're just branded to me and they're just something, but they're, but they're formatted and they're created in such a way that maybe, um, you know, like someone, someone who, who might bring me in for a commercial can look at that and say, yeah, that's really, that's really like what we want. And did that video help you in terms of getting commercial work? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that video, it's, it's weird. Cause I, I got to tell you that when I was doing that video and I was, I shot it really quickly, I literally shot it in probably four hours. Wow. Maybe five hours. I mean, it, it was, it was all shot handheld and, um, but yeah, I just shot it really quickly and, um, you know that's the thing with the with that with that particular piece, um, and it's unlike you know some of my stuff is pretty gestural and quick, but um, that particular piece, you know, when you're doing CrossFit, when you're doing like like the one guy doing the pull-ups can do like, you know, forty or fifty pull-ups in a row, right? But he can only do it once or twice. Yeah. So you know you kind of figure out where your shot's going to be and you get your shot. And you get it from one angle, and then you get it from another angle, and that's all you're going to get. I can say I shot it really quickly, but because I know that place, um, I was able to, in my head, I knew where I was going to be in all those shots. And I knew where the light was going to be. And I knew, um, you know, I, I, I had those, those details in my head, so I didn't really have to think about them when I got there. Um, but, yeah, it was the the post on it was was deceptively diff, difficult and and it took a long time you know to kind of color everything i was trying to do something a little bit more unique with the color and i was trying to do you know something really unique with the sound and you know when it all came down you know as uh, i'm sure you've dealt with this before you you get done with it and you're just like ah you know this is okay yeah <laughs> you know this is this is all right and I, I i just put it on it's okay but it's you know it's just all right and then i put it on uh on vimeo and just to kind of hey check this out and i you know i sent it to my production company and my production company was like oh this is amazing we love this but you know they're they're gonna say that <laughs> you know? yeah that's, that's what they do right and um but, uh, you know, I put it on Vimeo and like all of a sudden this thing, like, I don't know, it's got like hundreds of thousands of hits. Like it, it, it got on the Vimeo front page or something. And then some guy in time magazine was writing about it. And then, um, I guess I totally underestimated how many CrossFitters there are in the world because I think every single one of them saw it. Well, I think that video that video feels like it was made for them. You know, it's it it has that kind of that that sort of niche feel to it. Oh, and I just I'm really happy that people that that the people that like that's like one thing that I really love when you do a piece that's kind of specifically geared towards 
a particular niche, whether it's skateboarding or snowboarding or, you know, something like this. And people then, the people who are in it actually like, they, you, they actually have, they respond and they respond like really positively to it. Like it was, like it literally was made to, for them. I mean, the letters and things I've gotten from that are really inspiring and, and, um, you know, it's warm and fuzzy, man. It just like makes you, it makes you really happy that you did it. And, um, and you know, from, and, and commercially it's worked out really well, uh, really well. It's, I've gotten, you know, I've probably gotten six or eight projects, you know, just from that. And, um, you know, like, like Reebok called me and I guess they're, they're doing heavy CrossFit stuff and they, they, they were involved and I've gotten like several, you know, big, big projects just, just because of that piece. And how often are you able to do those kind of projects like on a tech scout or, you know, that you were just mentioning, like, are, are you, do you, uh, do you generally have the time to, to do that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, I have, um, a, a pretty set base team that I work with. I have a, a really great, line producer is one of my good friends and um and he knows my style and and he actually looks out for me like that he'll he'll tell me straight away i don't do him a lot um i try and do at least one to two personal projects a year and whether they're commercially viable like commercial film projects of some sort or the other and some of them never see the light of day, and they're just total experiments. And and uh, some of them are like that breathe piece, and um, and some of them are much bigger. And uh, so, you know, I, as far as like taking advantage of existing production and that kind of thing, it's really about um, you know talking it over with the the you know with my with my team. And they, you know, like he'll tell me, you know, he'll tell me, yeah, you know, we're, you know, we're going to, he'll, he'll tell me, he'll give me a heads up usually a week before or two weeks before or something. It's like, yeah, it looks like we might be, have a day or two in between here if you want to, if you want to make something like something happen. Yeah. And that kind of reminds me of the way Roger Corman used to make movies and that uh, Roger Corman, uh, for people who don't know, is a uh, legendary producer of B movies. Uh, who started in the 50s and would uh, would often uh, do a, a bigger budget movie um, and use those existing sets to do a, a smaller movie concurrently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I I, I certainly when I get when I get involved in a production, um, I'm a hundred percent. You know, you hired me for that production. I'm there. I'm your guy. I'm going to give that you know every bit of concentration that I can. But a lot of these other things, I've just I've already kind of pre-thought through, and uh, and they're ready to go. Right. And so if I have a little bit of free time, and a lot of times, you know, you're on these jobs. Well, not all the time, but once in a while, you have a situation where you're you're going to hire a crew, but they're only going to work. They're only going to have to work for like they're paid for the whole day, and you're only going to have to, and they're only going to have to be there for a couple hours. So if you can like pull something out or you can maybe uh, borrow a couple of lights or something like that, you know, whatever it is, it's always a flexible thing. 
You know, you just have to be ready to go because you can't like plan something from scratch, you know, right away. You mm -hmm. have to like have, you know, like that's why I have this kind of notebook full of ideas. I have them like literally organized from this can be shot in, in, you know, two hours and this one is a two day shoot kind of thing. You know, I have them not only in terms of like conceptually what I want to do, but I also have them in terms of, you know, ease of shooting. Let me ask you a common listener question, uh, which is, is what do you do to stand apart from everybody else? I mean, at the moment, everybody has access to really great looking, um, you know, technology that can make really great looking images. I, I, I think it all comes down to the idea. The, how it looks is irrelevant. I mean, a lot of times I'm making my stuff look worse than, than how I shot it, you know, um, in terms of I'm adding a patina to it in some way that isn't as sharp or isn't, you know, it's, I think it's more beautiful, but it's, um, you know, it certainly isn't about shooting the sharpest, clearest footage. You know, it's about, um, it's about coming up with a, a overriding concept and an idea. So, to make yourself different, you have to actually sit down and think about how you can approach this. You know, if you're actually competing for a job, you have to think about how, how other people are going to approach it and get in their head a little bit. But, and then look at it and go, well, you know, what's my take on this? How, how am I going to make this thing great? That, and then the other thing I've, I've found that's, probably got me more jobs than anything is just having a sheer level of passion. You know, when I, when I decide to do a job, I go all in, you know, like if I, when I get, when I decide I'm going to pitch a job, I don't pitch a job unless I know I can go all in on it. And when I get, when I get off the phone with the agency after agreeing to do a job, I know it's going to be 48 hours, you know, depending on how long they give me to, to do the pitch. Usually it's about two days. Sometimes it's three days. But um, I know that there's going to be 48 hours that I'm not going to sleep. And, and when and I do, my pitches are so, so they are the job. When, when I go back, I don't, you know, I don't, I, 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 I don't even, I used to write. I used to do you know, I know some guys just write stuff, and I think that really works in comedy jobs and stuff. I used to just write out the stuff, but then I realized that that wasn't enough. Like, I literally would go in, and it's more than just finding, you know, stock images or, like, visual things, visual cues. It's like I'll literally create everything I need to show them exactly how that job's going to look. And then, I'll, and then I'll write whatever needs to be written to fill in the blanks. You know, one of the things I think is interesting about commercial production is that it's the, the only medium, really, where you have essentially 30 seconds or 15 seconds sometimes. You have such a limited amount of time to tell a story and sell a product at the same time, and every shot has to look great. Uh, everything needs to to work with the music, the voiceover, the you know all those kind of elements need to work perfectly to to tell this story that you only have thirty seconds to tell, or or a limited amount of time. What do you think about that challenge? I don't. 
I, as far as, as far as telling the story, I think that, you know, if something's going to work, um, you know, if something's going to work well before you get on set most often, because if the idea is there, the idea is there. Um, the times where I get a little bit, um, I get a little bit worried or I get a little bit, uh, or I get a little bit unclear or like, you know, like these match cut jobs that we we're talking about when people really don't have an idea and every shot becomes important. And I really don't think every shot in a commercial is important. I think the takeaway of a commercial is very important. I think that holding people's attention is very important. I tend to look at, I tend to try and talk people off the ledge about every shot having being the most important shot they've ever done um, any way I can and start always harping on the fact that this is this, what do you want people to get out of this? Cause at the end of the day, that's what I'm going to give you. You know, you want them to do this. Um, the big thing that, you know, one of the things that it's, it's thankfully it seems to have, subsided a little bit but the um not this year but the last couple of years because the budgets at the the companies or, or the budgets at the the client side and the agency side were so tight people were trying to do a lot of 15 second spots that was like huge because they were doing a media buy and they'd get two 15s in the media buy, you know, in that 30 second window. So they do two different products or two different concepts or something. But the funny thing I noticed about that was that, you know, when you're doing something that's 15 seconds long, there's, you got to move. There's like a 15 second spot can only do one thing. It can only, there can only be one thing that comes out of that, you know, one idea. It, it's one thing. What do you want this commercial to be about? You'll ask the agency that, what do you want this to be? And they'll, and they'll say, well, we want it to be this or this and this. And, and you're like, but it can't be though. You've got to pick one. And no, but it's got to be this. Well, it can't be about that. Then. No, but it has to be about that. And that's when you know you're in trouble. You really, the, the thing is, I do everything in my power to try and encapsulate a commercial, whether it's a 15 or a 30 down into one big takeaway idea you know if it's you know something with a lot of different cuts in it like that wrangler piece it's it's about a guy's walk through life you know it's about him him you know it, it's just a basic idea it's about his journey through life or his daily life or something you know that's and and how wrangler seamlessly um you know, fits with that, that life. And so, but if you want, if, if, if it's about, you know, you see these spots like a Boeing spot where they'll have, Oh, uh, you know, a guy doing that or a hospital spot, a guy, you know, doing this and a guy doing that and, you know, someone out in the field running and this, and, you know, it's like, what is this spot about? You know, and every shot I'm sure was the most important shot that they ever did, but the spot ends up being a hodgepodge of nothing. So it's, uh, that's something talking people down from that ledge and trying to inform them and getting them to think globally for the spot 
is something I think maybe a few people are blessed with, but it only comes from doing a lot of spots because you really have to kind of um, and you know try and and learn how to talk to them about that. You know, and having a certain amount of understanding. The one thing, the one thing I used to see at Digital Kitchen all the time, that, uh, and I also see it with a lot of newer directors, is they really don't. They've never actually spent any significant time inside an agency, and they don't know how they work, and they don't know what those people are doing, and they don't know how the ideas are originated, and they don't know what goes into selling them, and they don't know how many other multiple jobs the creatives or the producers or whoever are also doing simultaneously to the job that they're doing with you. And so they're, so when the agencies make these decisions, they just look crazy. And oftentimes they're not, they're just, they're not really, they're on five other things and they're not, and, and they're looking to you to like kind of guide them. And so the biggest thing that you can, um, the biggest mistake I think you can do is letting them always give you the cues to like, as to what you're supposed to do. You know, they hired you to do something and sometimes that requires you to be kind of strong and almost parental and kind of, and kind of calmly discuss what this thing is and kind of bring them back in line as to what this is all about and what the goal is here. Because if you do that, then they're going to realize that you're the one who really has it all thought out and they can relax and they can worry about their other five jobs. One of the things that isn't talked about much that a lot of listeners have emailed me about and are interested in is is salary. Uh, what is a typical commercial director's salary? I know um, I know it varies. Uh, what What's the range that you know of? Um, I think a starting director... You know, it's it's really deceptive, I'll tell you, because it, it and it's a and it's a sliding scale. Um, even now, it's a sliding scale because it's based on the job and it's based on how much you want to do the job. But a, a typical uh, commercial director, when they first start out, might make anywhere between, um, I'd say, ten to twelve a day, ten to twelve thousand a day. The actual shoot days are on set. Um, after you've been around for a little bit, that probably gets bumped up to, you know, in the 15 to 20 range. I'd say that that would be the standard. Um, and then, you know, obviously it goes up from there for some of the rock stars, you know. And it also depends, you know, if you're shooting your own stuff, you'll get a DP rate on top of that. Um, you do a job, the first, the way I work is the first day I always get paid full rate. I never, give a break on the first day because um, too many people will just ask you to do that. And, um, you know, the rates aren't set in stone, you know. Um, the rates are what the job can afford and they can, you know, you have a certain standard that you go by and that's, that's what you, you've agreed to that with your production company and that's what they, that's what they put in for you. Um, and, but, you know, if a job's tight, um, if a job's tight, it, that could all go out the window. And uh, if the job is, uh, you know, multiple days, if it's going to be a big job and it's really cool, then, and they're, and they're really struggling to, 
uh, pinch pennies at the end, then then you can certainly give breaks after the first day. But you know, the one thing I was saying before um, is that uh, you know when you do these jobs, um, you know when you do these jobs, or when people hear about you know the director fees and things, they think that it's like this extreme amount of money, um, but. I really, you know, there's not a lot of directors out there really getting rich off of it because um, there's so, you, you could, especially when you're first starting out, you could do one job a year, you know, and, you know, you can make, okay, so your, your day rate's $10,000 a day, but if you only work one day, <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're, you're not, you know, you could, you could do better in other places. So, um, and then also there's the, there's the deal of, um, how much work you really, um, you're really doing, you know, you're only getting paid physically the days that you're on set. And so, you know, on a typical job, I'm prepping that job for two, sometimes even three weeks before the job. And, you know, it's always, there's always a, you may not be totally immersed in it at that point, but you're, it's occupying a good chunk of your time. And then on, depending on how the job goes after, you could spend, you know, a month where, you know, three or four days a week, you're, you're dealing with the, the edit and post of that job, you know, depending on the complexity of the job. So it's, it, it gets kind of, when you break it down over that time, it becomes, you know, it's still a nice chunk of change, but it's not like, uh, it's not, it's not near as, um, grandiose as people would think so when you're uh when you're starting out as a director and you're um if if jobs are kind of slow as they were uh, for you at, at crossroads uh initially what what do you do uh to make money are, are you just doing everything you can to get a job um in in terms of a, a commercial job coming in you're doing everything you can to get a commercial job coming in um you're eating ramen and your, and your, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, your, you know, the uh, the irony of it, and I do not fall into this category, but the irony is that a lot of the great commercial directors that you know that have some of the most creative things on their reel, you know, they might not want to admit to it, but they came from they came from some money, you know. There's a lot of people that you know had a certain amount of income to begin with that would allow them to kind of sit on a roster not making any uh commercial work for a while and allow them to just go out and make really you know personal things you know or they'll come from a situation where they really know somebody where they're off doing music videos and things for their friends but their friends happen to be Nirvana or something you know <laughs> Well, it seems like you'd almost have to to do something else if you're, you know, if if you're if you're sitting there all year and you only have one job and it's uh, you know, you get ten thousand dollars or it's two days and you get twenty. Um, it it seems like you'd almost have to, uh, you know, look for some other kind of work, you know, to or any other kind of directing work, maybe on the on the down low, uh, even. Yeah, I mean, like I said, if you're with a production company, they want to see you work first and foremost, and they want cool stuff to add to the reel. Um, if you, you know, 
they can only take your stuff out to the world so many times. You know, a rep wants to have something new. Every time you have a new job, whether it's a, a little spec spot or a personal piece or anything that is that shows your creative, it gives the rep an excuse to go out and say, hey, look what this guy just did, you know, and then they can go and rehash with that agency some of your existing work. Like, look what he just did. And, and remember these, these were awesome. These are really cool. And it just keeps you on the top of mind. So most production companies really won't have a, um, a problem, especially if they're not getting you work. They're usually pretty guilty. They, I mean, they're all really nice people and they're not like, they're usually feeling pretty guilty if they don't have something for you. Um, so they're not going to usually stop you from doing, from going out and, and making a living. Um, as long as it's not, you know, they're, they're just out to protect you. They're going to like keep you from doing something. They don't want you to go out and do a big, you know, non-union shoot or something. If you're in the DGA, they don't want you going off and doing some big non-union shoot that's going to get you in trouble and jeopardize the whole, the whole shebang, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, you go off and I can't remember what I was doing then, but you know, as a designer, I I guess I came at it from a different angle because I can always make, you know, I can always make money doing design work. I can always make money, you know, I'm pretty damn good doing you know motion graphics from my day. So if or, and visual effects. So if worse came to worse, I could always, uh, you know, go work for ILM or something before I before I had to hit Starbucks. Yeah. So so it seems to, to make make sense that if you're if you're just starting out that it, it helps to have the another another form of expertise, like either in uh motion graphics or editing or something uh that you yeah. can do. Yeah, there's a lot of directors that come from editing and I think that's a pretty logical thing because you can you know, those two you can certainly pursue one avenue to make some money while you're doing the other thing. But I definitely think that if you are, you know, if you're just sitting around waiting for a phone call for boards, you better be doing something else. And it's either, you know, it's either doing something to make money or if you do, or in lieu of that, you should be using that time to, um, to make some, some new work that'll, that'll enhance your career. You know, you should always, like, you should always be creating. And I, I, I think that that is paramount um, for any age of your career. Because the second you kind of stop with that, you get kind of rusty. Uh, our, what, what haven't we covered, Paul? This is That's a, uh, this is a three hours and, f and 40 minute interview. <laughs> this is a two, this is like the Godfather two of interviews. Don't, yeah. I don't think you need to, I don't think people need to hear this all. I think, uh, <laughs> no, no, I won't really, no, they, they don't want to hear us, uh, losing signal and all that. No. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't discussed, uh, Syria yet. Uh, <laughs> what else is there? What? <laughs> we, we talked about tabletops for God's sake. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's everything, Paul. Literally. Okay. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to add? Mm, stay in school. I think we should end on that. <laughs> <All right. laughs> and that was Paul Schneider on Spotcast number nine. 
Uh, if you like the show, please leave us a nice review on iTunes. It can be even one word. Just just one nice word that kind of sums up your feelings about the show. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at ron at swayproductions.com. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you'd like to see covered, feel free to send them my way. Please put Spotcast in your subject matter. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast on swayproductions.com. This is Ron Small saying goodbye. <laughs>